and marriage. <laughs> We've been talking about some uh, foundational values and some foundations for the uh, advancing of the kingdom, for us uh, enabling us to partner with Jesus in what it is that he is doing. Over the last few weeks, um, Fiona spoke on uh, unity in relationships and unity in worship um, a few weeks back. Um, Russ uh, went through the Matthew 18 uh, thing around kingdom relationships with us last week, um, how important it is to have really good, healthy friendships and relationships and uh, to leave nothing unturned and, and how to resolve conflict and all of that kind of stuff. And uh, it, uh, it occurred to me as I was thinking about all of that, that um, it all starts at home for us. And uh, so I just felt today that uh, it would be a great opportunity to just talk a bit about, um, particularly about marriage in, in, at, at greater length and about family and, and all of those relationships and how they work together. All right, so there's great chunks of the Old Testament that are big lists of genealogy, lists and lists of names and descendants. These are the bits that we often gloss over and we speed read when we're reading the Bible from cover to cover. It's all the begats and the begots. And we glaze over them or we read them when we're uh, trying to fall asleep. <laughs> but they are there for several reasons. And I think they demonstrate a few things to us. Uh, firstly, that God's plan always was and always is to partner with people to advance his kingdom. It also shows us that God uses imperfect people, sometimes very imperfect people. Thank goodness for that. God instituted family, and he's very, very interested in family, and he has a plan in mind for you and your family. So with that in mind, let's uh, turn to Genesis chapter 17. And we're just going to read through the uh, story of God's promise to Abraham and Sarah um, and how one family, the beginning of a family, uh, changed the course of eternity. So when Abraham, I'm going to do this a hundred times, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. My kids get that joke. None of you will. You got it good, yeah. Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Now, if we head down to verse 15. Then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. And then I will bless her and she will be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed, as you do, and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? 
And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. So family is a key foundation. God's promise to Abraham was, I will make of you a great nation from which will come blessing and redemption for the whole world. At that point, it was God's plan to send Jesus, and that plan began as a promise to Abraham and the miracle of Sarah having a son in a nursing home, if they existed back then. (laughs) Nursing tent, yes, that's right. The tent of nursing. (laughs) So look, family isn't man's idea. We didn't come up with it. It's God's idea, and it's central in being people in his kingdom. All right, let's uh, bring this forward to here and now. Um, Ephesians 5, turn there with me, um, from verse 15, says this. See that you walk circumspectly, that means be cautious or have your wits about you. Not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Now we know that the world lies under the influence of the evil one, so it should be little surprise then to us that one of his key tactics is to undermine and destroy the foundation of family, of marriage, gender and relationships, not just between friends, but between the closest human relationships that we have, family. It's so important in these evil days that we build our families on the culture and pattern of the word, not of the world. The culture of the world is decaying further and further and at the same time is screaming louder and louder. Everything is being undermined. The value of God's design for marriage, gender, nuclear family is long gone and the world is screaming out, what's in it for me? Over the last few weeks we've looked at what God is actually doing and the trajectory that things are taking. His kingdom is expanding at an exponential rate. We are privileged to be alive now, at the pointy end of that, as the graph is doing this. We've talked about the need to be ready as a church and that man's structures need to come down and we need to be building our churches on his pattern if we are to have any hope of supporting the growth that is to come. At a layer under that, churches are made up of people And we all exist in, and we are all a product of, families. So having overstated it now, we're going to touch on some things around God's pattern for family and marriage and parenting. All right. So relax. Take a deep breath. We'll have a laugh. (laughs) (laughs) No, never mind. (laughs) Oh, will we, she says. Firstly, let's have a look at marriage. We've had lots of wisdom from lots of people um, over the last few months in our three-ish minutes on marriage, sometimes 15-ish minutes, but that's been so great. Um, Steve looked at me this week and said, oh, do you want to do one this week? And uh, I think the Holy Spirit's really on this, so I thought, well, let's speak for 30 minutes about it without Kate. (laughs) Oh, dear. I'm in so much trouble. I've always been a bit reluctant to say much about marriage as sometimes I still feel like a kid and what would I know in comparison to all these wise, mature people around me. Well, Kate and I have been married 20 years in January. That round of applause is for her. (laughs) 
So you're probably wondering, um, how on earth did that happen? Well, we got married when we were seven. <laughs> uh, actually, um, Kate was 18. She was a week off 19, don't panic. And I was 20. And no wonder Kate's parents thought we were crazy. We probably were. We were crazy in love, but nowhere near as crazy in love with her as I am now. Getting the brownie points. Oh, yes. Those of you who are sharp with numbers have already figured out by now that I must have just turned 40 as well. So all of that to say that I'm running out of excuses to avoid talking about things like this. I'll be old and wise soon too. I'm very happy to be young and stupid for the moment. Though my uh, vanishing and greying hair is betraying me and you know you're in trouble when your chest hair starts to go grey. <laughs> too much information. <laughs> Dear, oh dear, oh dear, this could end up anywhere today. A little disclaimer, yeah, keep moving, shut up. <laughs> disclaimer, I've heard um, many messages uh, about marriage on the traditional male and female needs in, in marriage, his needs and her needs and all of that. And generally speaking, those things um, do ring true for most. But I've got to be honest, um, sometimes Kate and I hear these messages and, and we get all wide-eyed and we look at each other and, and I go, ah, I'm a woman. <laughs> And she goes, maybe I'm a man. <laughs> and um, <laughs> yeah, she's, she's the one that'll be off doing all the things or in the past, with blinkies on firmly while I'm whining and saying, talk to me. <laughs> or I'm being all creative and prattling on about how I feel about something and she's long lost interest and glazed over and she's going, uh-huh. <laughs> we're, um, we're much better at it now. We're pretty good at feelings now. Messy damn things that they are. So rather than get down to the finer points of the typical stuff of gender and, and those needs, let's, it's okay to accept that we all need love and respect, regardless of our gender. Some just lean one way more than the other. So it's, uh, in saying that, it's my hope today that there's stuff here that we can all take away. All right, let's go back to Ephesians 5. We're going to read from verse 22, and it comes with a warning. It has some naughty S words in it. Verse 22 says this, and the heading of this section is marriage and Christ and the church. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the saviour of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. <sighs> husbands, your turn. Love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. All right, let's deal with the unspeakable S word. Submission. I love that we get all hung up on this. 
And can I suggest that our hang-ups are because we don't understand it? Because the world has taken the concept of submission and turned it into something that uh, has a degrading connotation. I also love that this passage speaks in three verses to wives about the whole submission thing, and then to husbands in nine verses, much more significantly about what that actually means, probably because we're a bit thick. Now, people read the first couple of verses of this passage, verse 22 and 23, about submission and all of that, and they cry foul. They brand the verse as sexist or even rant about the passage as justification for husbands mistreating or abusing their wives. In extremes, they insist that these words prove that the church expects women to fall at the feet of an abusive bonehead. This is not the biblical understanding of submission. This is not what it is saying goes on from verse 25, talking to husbands about what he expects of them. The call for husbands is to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Just take a moment and let that sink in. He is to sanctify her, to cleanse her with the word, that he is to prefer her over himself at all costs, to leave nothing unspent in the pursuit of championing her. This totally changes the context of the call to submission for both sides. It's been said also that submission means that at the end of the day, the husband makes the call. If there's a disagreement or a call has to be made. Now, I've heard stories of husbands who have uprooted and moved their families internationally because God said, without so much as consultation with their wives at all. How do you reckon that worked out? Didn't end well. Rather, good leadership prays until there is consensus under Jesus as the head. In the same way that Jesus is the head of the church, he is the head of your Christian marriage and family. He isn't double-minded. He is saying the same thing to both of you. Trust the Holy Spirit to speak to both of you. Now, many moons ago, um, about 15 years ago, Kate and I uh, moved to Sydney to help with a church plant up there. And, and the process by which that came about was interesting. Um, very early on in a, in a year before we went, I felt God speak really clearly to me about it. Um, and I also felt him say, effectively, just shut your mouth <laughs> and, uh, and just sit on that. So I prayed into that and, you know, over the course of the year. And then um, some months later, towards uh, the latter end of that year, uh, Kate had been at a conference or something without me and came home and said, uh, shared some scriptures and said, uh, I, I just feel God is speaking to us and that we need to relocate to Sydney and help with this church plant. So he spoke to us individually about the same thing because he had the same intent for us and our family. You can trust the Holy Spirit in your spouse. Advertising makes out all men to be dopey and women to be selfish, and it gets up my nose. True submission includes bringing out the greatness in your spouse. In a biblical marriage, in a biblical marriage, submission is happening as to the Lord. That is, she is deeply caring for him honouring him and building him up alongside a husband who is laying down his life as Christ did for the church, giving everything for her, sacrificing his own interests in order to enhance hers, nourishing and cherishing her. 
Then we see each marriage partner bringing the other to their full potential. A marriage lived out in this mutually loving environment mirrors the interactive love that Christ has for his church and his church is called to have for him. So to overstate it again, overall what this passage of scripture is spelling out for us is that marriage is a relationship with, of mutual submission with Jesus as the head. He is calling the shots for your marriage and family if you'll let him. All right, calm down. So, what is submission, practically speaking? It's simply preferring the other's good above your own. It's preferring the other's good above your own good. Now, this flies in the face of the world, which is all about me and what can I get, or worse than that, what can I take? It's selfish and consuming. It's all prenuptial agreements. And I guarantee you no one has entered a prenup with the intent to make sure that they give everything they have to their spouse if it all goes pear-shaped. The world is all about what's yours is mine and what's mine is mine and I'll do whatever the heck I want, thank you very much, otherwise you don't love me. Take a look around to get all Dr Phil. How's that working out, world? We wonder why it's all unravelling. So what does it mean to submit to one another? It's about entering a relationship with the goal to give as much as possible to the other rather than getting as much out of the other as possible. Let me say that again. It's about entering a relationship with the goal to give as much as possible to the other rather than getting as much as possible out of the other. Don't approach a relationship to have your needs met. Approach a relationship with the goal to meet the needs of the other. Now, when this is working well from both sides and communication is happening, everyone's needs are being met through aiming for the other's best, through submission, not through selfish ambition or demand. The families that are built on these foundations are families that Jesus can use. Practically speaking, just ease up a bit. Practically speaking, there are a few takeaway points here. Um, some practical illustrations. Firstly, in your marriage... Don't sweat the small stuff. Stop, sledding, stop letting the small stuff become big stuff. So step on some toes now. It doesn't matter if you roll or scrunch the tube of toothpaste. If it really bothers you that much, buy another tube of toothpaste and have one for yourself. <laughs> now, while we're on subjects like that, the toilet seat, I feel, is very simple. She needs it down. He needs it up. If it's up, put it down. If it's down, put it up. I dare you to go full circle on this. When you're done, leave it up for him or leave it down for her. And now we're preferring the other. Now, men, they need the toilet seat up, okay? It'll be good for you. Won't go into that. You get the idea. There are many, many others. While we're in the bathroom, though, there is one non-negotiable that I think is extremely important. The toilet paper must hang down the front of the roll. <laughs> this is the right way. There is no other way. I can't find a chapter and verse for that, unfortunately. I tried. A revelation scroll, yes. <laughs> um, 
a number of times in our three minutes on marriage, people have mentioned the love languages thing um, over the last few weeks. So that's uh, the language of communicating love. You've probably all read the book or heard about it. It's uh, physical touch, quality time, acts of service, gifts, words of affirmation. Uh, so here's a big tip on those. They are about understanding how to communicate love in a way that the other understands. They're not about learning your own love language so that you can make sure that you get it. <laughs> All right. Okay, here we go. Enter intimacy. S-E-X. <gasps> With the goal to give to the other, not to get for yourself. This will go well for you. This is a good thing. If it's truly happening, it's going to be a good time for both of you. Talk, communicate, learn. I reckon too many married Christians are having a bad time or not a time at all in this department because they won't talk, they won't communicate and they won't learn about their partner. There's a whole lot more we could say about that and we will sometime when there's a forewarning and a rating. And fortunately, my girls have gone home with someone else so they don't have to die of embarrassment. Now here's an important point in this scripture. Verse 31 talks about the process of separation from your parents and coming together as one under Christ as the head. Can't stress this enough. It's so important. Once you are married, neither your parents nor your partner's parents have any authority over your relationship and family. <sighs> your decisions and the way you approach family comes from a mutual submission to each other under Jesus. His will for your family must dominate, not your in-laws. Now, in saying that, personally, we are incredibly blessed, uh, Kate and I, with amazing parents on both sides, and we value and honour their wisdom and help, and we're so grateful for them, because they're probably listening, I have to say that. <laughs> Part of this is because our parents understand this principle as well. There isn't any uninvited advice or opinions or meddling in what, us, what Kate and I and our family do. Now, I know for many of you, though, that this isn't the case. It isn't your experience. And your parents expect to have a say in everything. They do not. It's as simple as that. God's plan for you is to come together as a new family under him, leaving any and all influence of your family of origin behind. They don't get to enter the conversation on the big stuff unless you both invite them. Jesus is the highest authority in your relationship. Now, all of the above, all that we've talked about is going to involve good communication. So I'm sorry, men, you've got to talk. Now, I love what uh, Mia said last week about uh, as she introduces to the word confabulate or confabulating. It's going to become a, a <laughs> something that will stick with us, I think. <laughs> Uh, uh, and when she was talking about that, I immediately thought of this that I've uh, seen on the internet a few times now. This is uh, his and her diary from the same day. So her diary for this particular day reads this. Tonight, I thought my husband was acting weird. We had made plans to meet at a nice restaurant for dinner. I was shopping with my friends all day long. I thought he was upset about the fact that I was a bit late, but he made no comment on it. Conversation wasn't flowing. So I suggested that we go somewhere quiet so we could talk. He agreed, but he didn't say much. I asked him what was wrong. He said, nothing. I asked him if it was my fault that he was upset. He said he wasn't upset and that it had nothing to do with me and not to worry about it. On the way home, I told him that I loved him. He smiled slightly and kept driving. 
I can't explain his behaviour and I don't know why he didn't say, I love you too. When we got home, I felt as if I had lost him completely, as if he wanted nothing to do with me anymore. He just sat there quietly and watched TV. He continued to seem distant and absent. Finally, with silence all around us, I decided to go to bed. About 15 minutes later, he came to bed, but I still felt that he was distracted and his thoughts were somewhere else. He fell asleep. I cried. I don't know what to do. I'm almost sure his thoughts were with someone else. My life is a disaster. His diary from the same day. Motorbike won't start. Can't figure out why. <laughs> Just talk to each other. Instead of talking to yourselves and making up some stupid story. If your partner says they're thinking nothing, then maybe, just maybe, they're thinking nothing. Now, men are great at this. Actually, Kate's pretty good at it too. But she does this face when she's in a nothing box that has me convinced I'm about to die a horrible death. <laughs> in saying that though, this has to come with the understanding, however, that if there is something wrong, stop saying nothing. Just talk about it. Rip off that band-aid. All right, Ephesians chapter 6. Let's, uh, let's talk to parenting and kids. First one says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that, I, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Now, in looking pretty much the only place in the kingdom where I can find a person having authority over another person is in the parent-child relationship, in the context of young children that you are bringing up in your home, not as adult children. You have spiritual and practical authority over your kids. In a world that is shouting things at them louder than ever before, it's more important than ever that we understand this. I so often hear at the school pickup line things like uh, parents saying things like, oh, I have to give my 10-year-old a smartphone because they demanded it, and I don't have a choice. Yes, you do. <laughs> be emboldened that you absolutely do have the authority to be the gatekeeper on what, you, what your young children do and what they are exposed to. No, they don't have to do everything. In fact, these boundaries that we put in place and then police are absolutely essential to their safety and development. Your no must mean no right from the beginning in the same way that your yes must mean yes. This is a key to them growing up feeling safe and loved. Now verse 4 says, uh, uh, talks about provoking your children. It's not the goal to set out to provoke them and to elicit the uh, mum and dad are ruining my life response, though you'll probably get that from time to time. Rather, the goal is firstly to protect your kids, to keep them safe from harm, to train and encourage them in loving and serving Jesus. And if we do this all from a foundation of unified marriage, of mutual submission and love, deep down they will know this and they'll appreciate it sooner or later. Set the foundation of your relationship with your children on care and protection grounded in love not on having them be your best friend because you give them whatever they want so they like you. Jesus is the head of your family. What does he want for your kids? 
What opportunities is he creating for them? Say yes to those with every part of your being. Go after them with everything you can. All right, let's wrap up. Let's flick over to Isaiah chapter 40. Verse 11 says this. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. So particularly today in preparing this, I, just, I became acutely aware that this all might be a um, painful subject for some of us. That there are people whose experience of all this is very much less than ideal. And uh, that you may have been deeply hurt or terribly abused in a family relationship in the past or even in the present. Or perhaps you have a difficult relationship with your parents. If that's you, we are for you. And the Holy Spirit is for you and wants to meet you here. So rather than avoiding any raw feelings through just ignoring these subjects, so much better to face them and be equipped with the goal to break the cycle and reset the circuit breaker. The habits, patterns, pain and disappointment that has been passed down through generations of family has the opportunity with the Holy Spirit's help to stop with you. There can be a new start. There can be a new legacy and pattern for the generations to come after you. Jesus needs you and your family happy and healthy to facilitate what he's doing. The Holy Spirit is a comforter and don't we know that this morning? And he leads those gently who are with young. There will be some here who are walking a journey where their partners aren't following Jesus. We are praying for you and we are praying for them often. We pray for them by name uh, as an eldership often. There will also be some here this morning who have lost partners. Very recently. <clears throat> we are praying for you too. There will be people here who are crying out for a partner. We're praying for you as well. The Holy Spirit is for you. In both all of these cases, Jesus is your head. And he has it in hand. He loves you more than you can comprehend. So in all of this, love your family, love your partner, love your kids, love your parents with a love that is supernatural. Trust the Holy Spirit in your families. He is for you no matter where you're at and what your experience has been. Joe and guys, if you'd come. So I just felt this morning that um, God wanted to minister to some of this stuff. We've had a laugh and we've had some fun, but there's some realities as well. And uh, just in ramming home that, that he is for you. So if that's you, if you're a bit raw, if um, there are adjustments that you need to make, um, we're, we're going to sing a song now so that you've probably all heard. It's called The Blessing. And we're just going to declare this blessing, make this statement over the families and kids in our church. And uh, if it's you, if it's you that's hurting, just um, as we worship and stand, just raise your hands where you are or, or whatever, and people around you can just pray for you. But the goal here is just to let the Holy Spirit minister. Let him comfort. He is the one that can change the direction of your life. He is the one that can reset the circuit breaker. He is the one that can create a new season for the generations to follow you. 
with his help, he'll do it. So just forgive me while I juggle microphones here.